I was always, and everyone who worked on it, it's extremely conscious of what happens if it's disappointing. I mean, that was a huge, huge pressure on us. What was super stressful was I was literally working between the show and the movie 24-7. And I'm not saying, you know, like 24-7, I'm saying 24-7. I felt any more pressure, I would be a diamond. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, we speak to a brilliant screenwriter who's kindly dug out their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're delighted to have with us Al Jean, longtime showrunner of The Simpsons and co-writer of 2007's The Simpsons Movie. Homer, Lisa, Bart, Marge and Maggie's big screen debut was a long time in the making. By 2007, The Simpsons had been a global sensation for approaching 20 years. The show, about the escapades of an endearingly dysfunctional family, set in the fictional town of Springfield, had struck a cultural chord unlike many shows before it. Its success, and the show's constant references to cult classic movies, made the prospect of a Simpsons film seem like a no-brainer. Al and The Simpsons' writing staff, however, were determined to wait for a Simpsons story that felt truly cinematic before bringing it to the big screen. In 2007, they found one. The Simpsons movie took America's favourite family on an adventure involving environmental catastrophe, epiphanies in the Alaskan wilderness, and a giant glass dome being placed over Springfield. The film was, as expected, a giant smash. As season 31 of the show gets underway on TV, we caught up with Al to hear how creating The Simpsons movie almost broke him, why he and the film's writing staff opted for a new villain instead of Hank Scorpio, and whether or not its environmental message foreshadowed our current climate crisis. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Al Jean, such a pleasure to have you on the show. We are chatting quite a while now into lockdown at this point, and while the rest of the world has kind of slowed as a result of this crisis, The Simpsons has kept going, and from what I'm aware, you found ways to work around the current challenges, is that right? Well, we've been very lucky since our animation, we're able to do everything remotely, including record our cast. So we haven't missed a minute. We've been just working remotely for 15 weeks now. Wow. And um, uh, I don't anticipate we'll do fewer shows or change the shows or do anything differently at all. That's good to hear. I know that you and the writing team on The Simpsons, you like to take inspiration from real life. You reference real life. Have you thought at all yet? Have you have there been any discussions about maybe tackling this subject head on, tackling the coronavirus crisis in a future episode, a future season? Well, we predicted this 25 years ago. So now we're predicting 25 <laughs> years from now. So <laughs> you'll have to wait and see just what's coming. But um, in terms of in terms of this, uh, you know, it's a, certainly a state of life that's going to last for a while. And I just yeah. hope people take it really seriously. That's my only you know take on it. Well, we're here today to talk about The Simpsons movie, which I don't think it's an exaggeration to say really did feel like a cultural event on release. It was the long-awaited first big screen adventure for America's favorite family. It uh, grossed over 500 million at the box office and fans who grew up with the show queued up to see it again and again. But it was a long journey to get to that moment, wasn't it? It's funny because it was at some points a long journey and sometimes a very quick journey. The first time it came up is in season four, we read the Camp Krusty episode and Jim Brooks said, hey, this could make a movie. And I thought, we're having trouble filling a 20 minute episode. (laughs) (laughs) So that that didn't fly. Um, Discussions were on and off for a long while. And then um, 
prior to season 13, the cast got a new contract. Part of that contract said that they would do a movie if we could write the script by, I think the date was like 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, Jim wanted to hire uh, people who would sort of run the show at various stages and, and get like a dream team together with him and Matt. And um, I remember distinctly, it was right before Thanksgiving 2003, Matt Groening came in and said, um, we should do a movie about a pig whose uh, feces are, are destroying a town. <laughs> because it's too much. And Jim was like, sold that's the movie <laughs> so that was very fast um at that same meeting i don't know who somebody said oh maybe the epa could put a dome over the town to try to cover it up so we had the basic premise in 2003 and then mm-hmm. to make it sort of a breezy you know fast-paced funny movie we were rewriting and rewriting the script from then nearly till it premiered july 2007 yeah, because I guess the, the pressure must have been immense. It's it's the film. I, I used that, to say if I felt any more pressure, I would be a diamond. <laughs> yeah, because it was, it was the film that a generation of people who grew up on the show. It, it's the film that we had all waited for. Um, I'm wondering what kind of pressure was there to deliver a script worthy of that milestone? The biggest thing was there was no need for us to do it, uh, except if it was good, because... There have been so many episodes, so many more now. Uh, 400 had aired by the time the movie premiered. Um, you know, we had, had, you know, had been seen worldwide. So I was always, and everyone who worked on it, it's extremely conscious of what happens if it's disappointing. I mean, that was a huge, huge pressure on us. Mm. Right until I think the day the reviews started coming in and we saw we got about a 90 on Rotten Tomatoes. And then we're like, okay, it's not terrible. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I stand by that. It's not terrible. <laughs> it's pretty good. So um, the post. I can see where it could be better. You know, I can see where we never quite licked certain things. You know, the, always there was the problem of you have this mystery, which was great. And then it's the dome, which is exciting. And then the Simpsons get out. And then it's what happens to them between getting out and coming back is always kind of like muddy. And uh, another little secret is the movie's only, I think, 88 minutes long. <laughs> That's like a lot of credits and stuff. So that was one little trick for, um, you know, making it seem fresh and breezy. It's quite short. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting revisiting the film now because the Simpsons movie came out in 2007, way before the current conversation and awareness around climate change. But, but this film had some really bold environmental themes running through it. The, the film's message almost seems to kind of be more impactful, more relevant now. Is, is that fair to say? We were hoping. Uh, we like to tackle stories that aren't events of the day, but, uh, uh, you know, events that you will look at in five years and go, this is still an important issue. And sadly, I don't think the environment is getting any better. Uh, it's certainly getting some more attention now. And I think what's happening with coronavirus is a good indication of what happens if you don't pay enough attention to the natural mm-hmm. world. But, um, you know, we knew it would be something that in 2020 it would still be with us as a problem. So that idea of pollution in Springfield reaching catastrophic levels, um, was that like an anxiety that you and the guys in the writing room shared and you talked about a lot? Or was it just something that, you know, it felt like a great way to unlock an amazing story that we hadn't seen in the show before? I think we were looking for something that was big and would make it a movie. So the dome definitely made us think that's the big screen thing. Yeah. And I think it was sort of a shorthand for our feelings about global warming. Mm-hmm. Um, after the initial meeting, but not too long after, Al Gore came by the Simpsons staff and showed an inconvenient truth and talked to us about it. 
And I remember seeing that and going, we really don't have very much time to turn this around. And we have mm -hmm. obviously have even less time now. So I think it was sort of a metaphor for that. Um, and uh, well, I can tell like when we were writing it, uh, very few people had read it, except for the people working on it. Tom Rothman was the head of the studio and Hurricane Katrina hit in New Orleans. And suddenly there were all these news stories that said people huddle under dome, people trapped under dome. And we were going, oh my gosh, is our movie going to be incredibly bad taste when it comes yeah. up? And that was 2005, and we were scheduled for 2007. So we went to Tom Rothman, the head of Fox, and he read it. He hadn't read it yet. And he said, no, uh, you know, the time that this comes out, it will be a separate thing. And it was. Um, so, but there was a point we were really worried, oh gosh, this is just going to, and that is another environmental catastrophe. I mean, that was a powerful hurricane yeah. and flooding, you know, so it's all related. The first draft that you very kindly sent over is a table read dated almost exactly 15 years ago today. You mentioned that Matt came in with this story around 2003, was it? November 2003. And then the writers, the original writers, which was uh, me, Mike Reese, George Meyer, um, Mike Scully, John Beattie, John Schwartzwalder. Um, David Merkin divided the script into seven parts and we did a draft based on the seven and then we combined that draft together and worked on it a lot. And this is all between 2003 and the one I sent you, which mm. is the first one we read with the Simpsons cast and the Simpsons crew. Like that was the first time anybody other than the small group of us really knew what was in it. Mm. Um, and one thing that, that, you know, was a big thing before the draft you saw was Jim came in and he said, we need something that tells people there's a story. We need them to know it's not just three episodes. And so the idea was that Marge was going to have a vision in the church mm. and say, Ipa, Ipa, and something's coming, and what is it? And um, Julie recorded it, and she was uh, screaming. She was acting so hard, like it hurt her voice. <laughs> and then we wound up going, it doesn't work. I feel very badly for Julie because you don't want Marge to be nuts. Like yeah. if grandpa's nuts in the church, people don't get too alarmed and it doesn't wreck the rest of the movie. Mm. So that's why we changed it to grandpa. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't <laughs> change it till after we'd recorded Julie, but <laughs> you um, shredded her vocal cords. Yeah. And uh, so that scene's still in the movie. And that I think really, you know, you have jokes that open it, you know, sort of free bits that um, add time and welcome you to the movie <laughs> and the joke about anyone who watches this is a giant sucker, you know, like to sort of yeah. a lot of jokes in the movie make fun of you watching the movie, which I think you can only <laughs> get away with once. Yeah. Uh, so and then that was really a saying, here is a plot. Here's a reason you should be wondering what's going to happen by the end. Yeah, that opening with the sort of really fun moment of meta commentary, the family at the cinema watching an itchy and scratchy movie. Homer says, I can't believe we're paying to see something we get on TV for free. If you ask me, everybody in this theater is a sucker, especially you pointing to the audience. Giant it sucker. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of addresses the elephant in the room of the awkwardness in which uh, TV shows kind of sometimes transition to the big screen. There are movies where people go, I don't get why this had to be a movie and especially if the movie doesn't give you an independent experience i've seen movies where it kind of ties into an ongoing show and people will say wait the movie didn't you know add anything I, you know i still got to watch the show to find out what happened you know in the movie <laughs> it's too much yeah the ones that seem to be the more successful movies based on tv shows are ones like the fugitive where you know it was way after the show and its own thing the Sex and the City movie again after the show ended. We just, our problem was the show never ends. That kind of scene 
you've addressed it, we're able to laugh at it, and then it kind of allows us to move on. Was that the kind of function of that opening? Yes, and that's a little bit of a reason why we haven't done a sequel, because you can't have Homer stand by going, now you're really stupid to see the second movie. You know, you have to do something that's that's fresh and innovative and, and you know deserves to be good on its own. So we're very careful, you know, having done a, one movie and two shorts, which were good, I think, you know, we do not want to make a movie just to make another movie. We only want to do it if it's good. So in this, in this first draft, we then have something that, that didn't make the movie at all. This starts, or this draft starts with a song about Saturday night in Springfield, that makes incredible use of all the ensemble cast. Almost every character gets their little moment singing about how they're spending their Saturday night. We see Mo, Bumblebee Man, the Sea Captain, Otto. I, I especially like Grandpa's line, it's a chance for us old timers to find love before we get Alzheimer's. Can you tell me about that song and like why it didn't fit in the finished film? The very first screening we had, a really small theater with friends and family, that, that song was in it. It wasn't fully animated. And we had thought that you know, people were going to just be excited to see, oh, there's the sea captain. And, and what we realized is you don't get any extra points for that. You have to just interest people who have never seen the, movie, the show and interest people, you know, who may have seen the show but aren't going to just clap because Sideshow Bob walks on. That was one of the biggest lessons of doing it. So that whole introductory number just didn't do anything. It wasn't part of the plot. It was just seemed like a self-congratulatory thing. So we got it. Yeah. We had, yeah. also had a Sideshow Bob scene that we kept trying to put in. And Kelsey recorded it, but it, it just never seemed to be important to the people watching the movie. You know, what yeah. people in the movie cared about watching the movie was the pig. What happens to the pig? You know, uh, how does the family get back to the good graces of the town? You know, what about mm. Bart, Homer, and Flanders? That's interesting to hear because, uh, yeah, of course, this could have been a film bogged down with fan service. There's a few moments and Easter eggs, I guess, in, in this first draft. For example... Uh, I noticed there's like an outing for Homer's Mr. Plow jacket, but generally what could have been a script heavy on fan service instead is pretty light on those things. And the only thing that could fall, I guess, under that category is Homer landing a jump over Springfield Gorge, which is a callback to like season two of the show. It works also as a dramatic moment, even if you never saw that. On the exactly. Show. Yeah. And it's totally true that the fan service stuff doesn't get you anything. And um, we found that uh, it, it was just wiser to, there's a big debate about whether we were going to say it was Wolfcastle or Schwarzenegger as the president. Mm -hmm. And after a lot of talk, we made it Schwarzenegger just because we thought people who were watching and didn't know would go, who is this? Why did they call him Wolfcastle? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, just say it's Schwarzenegger, do the same voice and, and it, you know, it'll just be clear to the, the wider audience. Um, so, yeah, as you mentioned, we then go to the church. It's very different. Marge is the one who has this re religious epiphany um, instead of Grandpa in the finished film. Um, we also then follow Lisa to the music store in town where she encounters this guy who she immediately falls for. In this first draft, this guy is kind of arrogant. He's, he's the total opposite of Lisa. He eats meat. He's insensitive. And he's called Dexter as opposed to Colin in the, um, in, in the finished film. I can't remember how many names that character had, how many <laughs> iterations he had. We finally thought, okay, well, we'll give him an Irish accent that'll serve as a character. And of course, at the end, <laughs> you may remember, she's like, oh, Colin, we're together, which, you know, we've never seen him again, <laughs> nor, nor will we. He's a real person. He'd be like 25 by now going, hey, what about me? <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about the evolution of that character and like what you hoped he would bring out in Lisa? And, and well, obviously, they wanted everybody to have a storyline. And I pitched the yeah. one where Bart wishes the Flanders was his father. 
And um, Marge, you know, was initially the, the story driver. So it was Lisa that we didn't have quite a platform. It wouldn't, you know, seem that because she's the environmentalist in the family. So it seems like she would, you know, fit into the storyline. So um, we, we tried to give her this guy and um, it's pretty funny. You know, we fixed her up in the show with Millhouse, with Nelson. I think she just wants to be her own person. Mm. <laughs> I don't think she yeah. wants to be with anybody. <laughs> yeah. But it works as well because... It, you, the, the evolution of that character of Dexter or Colin as he becomes known in the final film I think they meet while door knocking for envi- for environmental causes and that helps bring like introduce the environmental drivers of the film a lot earlier was that the intention yeah I, I think it was as I say there were a couple tricks we pulled or things we got away with that was one because that really doesn't have a great ending mm-hmm. um, you know the there was another song that was cut uh, written by Dave Stewart, the rhythmics and the lyrics by Mike Reese about Alaska yeah. that was cut. Uh, we, you know, got the Alaska stuff and I think it was funny, but it was quick. And um, again, just the idea that this is a movie, why are we making a movie? You know, we just had to sort of do kind of nimble things to get through it. And, um, you know, I, I people don't like when you say this, but I have to say testing really helped. You know, when we put it in front of audiences, especially screenings in Portland and Phoenix, you could really see what worked and what didn't. And, and, you know, what really worked was the story, the story and then the character's relationship with the story, the wedding video, uh, and the pig, it, it was really important to people. You know, there's the thing where we put it in a joke where Homer wasn't quite so nice to the pig. People hated that. And we took it right out. <laughs> yeah. And, um, you know, of course, Homer's relationship with Bart and the third highest testing character in the movie, you might be surprised was Maggie. Uh, who, you know, when you think about it, yeah, she's like Charlie Chaplin. She's just like really exciting visual character. Like it's always beloved in movies. So that's why she's been the star of our two little shorts. Of course. Um, It's fascinating, Al, reading this script as an insight into how the team might write a joke, then in subsequent drafts, workshop that joke, tighten that joke, push it to the extremes of how funny it could possibly be. And a great example of that is in the the next scene that we get to in the script, which is a brilliant action scene. We have Homer daring Bart to skateboard naked through Springfield. A lot of the elements are the same, but you've really sharpened the jokes on subsequent drafts. So in this version, for example, we don't yet have that great line where Flanders, Rod and Todd are in Krusty Burger saying grace when naked Bart slams into the window. Um, Flanders exclaims, we thank you, Lord, for this bountiful penis. Can you talk me through that process, the way that you guys really challenged the material to be as funny as it could possibly be? How many times like, would you go over a sequence to, to get the most out of that material? The scene in the hotel room where they're, they're discussing what to do after they've escaped from Springfield and Homer wants to go to Alaska. I, we must have written a hundred drafts of that. Really? With the beginning, uh, it was another idea of Nance that he wanted Bart to skateboard naked. And I think it was Mike Scully who suggested the joke where really briefly you do see Bart's penis. So, you know, we knew those two would be good. And then the Flanders thing came later. And what we felt at the end when we had that sequence pretty tight was that, so people were on board that the movie was funny. And so that's when we could start the plot. Mm. Uh, because people were laughing, you know, they did, you know, five minutes of stuff that was pretty good jokes. And they were really, anything that wasn't very funny, it was cut by that mm. point. So, um, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty ruthless. It's either very funny or has to really be on story and, and, you know, 
have a character advancement or it doesn't stay in. Oh, okay. So in the writer's room, you must have to be pretty free of ego and just accept that sometimes your gags aren't going to make it. I, I mean, everybody, the good thing is, is everybody on the staff is, if it works, keep it in. If it doesn't, keep it up. The, the problem is sometimes we were discussing stuff where people have opinions that were pretty hard, heartfelt. And, and I would just always want to get it in front of an audience because then you go, you might think it's funny, but if an audience isn't laughing, it ain't funny. You know, yeah. it goes, that changes pretty quickly. There's another sequence that's in that script where Arjun and Homer have a back and forth about names for pig crap. Like his dropping, his leaving, his Butterfinger BBs, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, and then, of course, with an animated film, stuff like just Homer combing the pig's hair in different styles or Homer giving the finger or Homer pretending to be a chainsaw, that stuff just suddenly took off in animation. Like you would see something that had a visual element really get laughs. We then start to introduce what's the real emotional pulse of the movie, or at least one of them, the, the disconnection between Homer and Bart. Did you always know that that was going to be one of the real kind of emotional drivers of the film? That was one where I, we were looking for an emotion. And I said, well, what if Bart goes over and sees Flanders? And this is always my favorite part of the movie. Mm. And thinks, why, why don't I have a dad like that? You know, and the scene where Flanders makes cocoa for him. And the music is great by Hans Zimmer. And I just thought, there you see this kid, you know, so the naked stuff was funny. But then there's a poignancy to it. And it's real. And uh, I did see a great use of one of the, uh, this is a short welder line. Uh, where it's used for the year 2020 goes, this is the worst day of 2020, the worst day of 2020 so far. <laughs> yes, that's, that's very real. Um, so we then like, uh, we, we see Homer's pig silo is overflowing as it is in the final film. In a fit of laziness, he decides to dump it in the lake instead of disposing of it properly. Which by the way is what Americans do in other countries for sure. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there. I mean, that's the problem. Is we, you know, we have not, we do not have adequate methods for disposing of all our waste, mm. and it, it causes this chemical disaster. The government or EPA, they, um, the Environmental Protection Agency, they react by putting a glass dome over the town. And I've, I've got to ask Al, you beat Stephen King to this idea. His book Under the Dome came out a year or two later. Did you ever hear his reaction to, uh, yeah, this sort of strange echo between his book and your film? I, I did hear him respond to it. I never, I would love to have known what happened the day he saw our movie because he's a pop culture <laughs> fan. And I should add, we've, you know, he's a friend of the show so many times and been yeah. so, you know, indebted to Stephen King. It's obvious that, you know, I, I didn't think he took it, but what did he think when this <laughs> came down? Because he had this thousand-page book. It was and I believe his, his statement, he said that he had had this thing, he had put it aside, and then he came back and, and you know, put it out dramatically. But um, thank God we did it first, because otherwise then we, we would have had, like, you know, uh, it would have turned white if that book had come out in January 2007. I, got, I can't even think how bad that would have been. He could, he could take it, we couldn't. <laughs> The Simpsons has had some amazing villains over the years. So you've got in your arsenal, Sideshow Bob, you've got Mr. Burns, you've got Hank Scorpio even. Talk to me about Russ Cargill. How did you decide um, that, yeah, what was the decision that led you to realize this movie needs a, a new face? It doesn't need to recycle one of the existing villains. That was a big discussion because a lot of people said, why didn't you make it Mr. Burns or Sideshow Bob? Both of whom would have been options. Mm. Uh, Jim and we uh, all huge fans of Albert's. And again, we thought for a movie, why don't we do something with Albert that's you know bigger, that's different. But what was funny is we recorded many, many hours of takes where the character was very slow and depressed and 
there was a scene at the White House Correspondence Dinner where he was talking, and the audience for the screening in Portland just said he's he's kind of boring and sad. And we went back and we said, we're just going to make him super fast. We're going to make him talk like Donald Rumsfeld. So he came in. Everything that's in the movie was recorded in one one-hour session, all the, all the lines that Albert wound up doing. Uh, and we had like some punch-up to specifically write for the new character. We had two rooms going, and the other room came up with the thing about it. I was elected to... It was just a thing about I was like to delete, not to read, yeah. and things like that. And suddenly it, it popped, you know, and it was just speed. The Simpsons are then chased out of Springfield after it's revealed on the evening news that uh, Homer is the one responsible for turning the lake toxic and in turn for the dome. Um, we have that really fun scene where basically every citizen of Springfield descends on Evergreen Terrace, pitchforks in hand. Maggie uncovers a way out of the dome through the sandbox in their backyard and the family get out and they decide to head to Alaska. When we get there, as we touched on a little bit earlier, there's a song that ultimately didn't make the cut. Um, The impression I got from this first draft compared to the finished film is that you didn't want to spend too much time outside of Springfield and that might have been the reason for the cut. Yes, that uh, whether we wanted to or not, it was always problematic. I think whenever Jim would get to that point when we were working on it, he would just go, mm, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. Mm. You know, they're treading, they're, they're treading water. They're, they're not doing anything to help Springfield or advance the plot. And that was always the most problematic section of the film. So it wound up being pretty short. You know, I mean, we had that epiphany, which we thought would be interesting animation um, mm. and Homer going back from Alaska. But the whole thing is, is, definitely like the shortest sequence in the movie. I mean, like the sequence where the mob comes and, you know, tries to hang them. That's much longer, I think, than the Alaska sequence. And speaking of like having fun with, with the animation, that the epiphany where Homer realizes that other people are almost as important as me. Wait, no, as important as me. That uh, scene in this first draft is somehow even trippier than, than the one that ended up in the film. I wondered whether, you know, that was whether you kind of were trying to take a little bit of the flavor of like one of my all time favorite Simpsons episodes. The chili pepper. Yeah. The chili pepper. Yeah. It actually um, has an older antecedent, which is we were trying to think of something animation heavy and uh, Matt suggested we watch Dumbo and pink elephants on parade. And Mm. that sequence is so great and so hallucinogenic for something that came out in 1940. I think that was a, sort of the muse we had going into that. You know, you mentioned Disney. There's there's a line that's not in the first draft, but does end up in the final in the final film where uh, <laughs> you refer to Disney as like a... Is it like evil, evil corporation. <laughs> I know. Now here we are. Now it's on Disney Plus. But they kind of owned it, didn't they? Didn't they put out some sort of like compilation of like all the times that Simpsons... They did. Was... Although they didn't put in, there were a couple that were even too much for that compilation. <laughs> um, why Alaska, Al? Was it just a place that the Simpsons hadn't gone to before? Uh, we were trying to think of a place that was logical for them to go. It helped that Alaska is in America, although Homer didn't know that, so that was a funny line. Mm-hmm. And then we found out that Alaskans got, I think John Schwartzel's brother had worked on the pipeline, that they got a pipeline bonus of $1,000 each or something. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, that's the perfect thing Homer would want, is to go to the place where you get money just for being there. Um and that he, you know, we wanted to make a moment. There's that scene that we kept rewriting where he's 
he's got he's been saving this one thing for when he's go you know in his marriage so much trouble that he's got to like pull something out and save himself and he's got Alaska and that's it. And so I thought it worked pretty well that idea. Mm. And the strain that you put Marge and Homer's relationship. What were some of the discussions in the writers' room about how to approach that and how to do something new with it? Well, the the I had pitched the scene where um, she taped it over his wedding video, you know, and and Jim really liked it. Uh, to really bring home the emotion of how bad this was, this moment, to make it worse than anything that they'd had. And we, again, we recorded Julie about a hundred times that speech she makes to Homer. And the one that was used in the film, um, she had a cold, so she sounded like she was near tears the whole time she was giving the take. Mm. And that's the one where she really, you know, nailed just how, how sad the moment it is for Marge. Oh, wow. Just because she had a cold and it just sort of lent to the performance. It helped. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's she might amazing. have been fed up with doing 100 <laughs> Well, especially after you shredded her vocal cords doing the church stuff earlier. I really love working with her, and, and uh, she got a lot of kudos for her work in the movie, which she totally mm-hmm. deserved. Yeah. And actually, we should pause for a second. And um, when, you, when you say, Al, when you say you pitched, you pitched it in the writer's room, can you talk a little bit for people who don't know about, like, what that environment is, what it means to pitch, and kind of how ideas are floated. Well, generally, if you're going line by line and people go, oh, what if somebody says this? You know, there was that line where um, uh, with all those beady eyes and giant teeth, it's like uh, Christmas at the Kennedy compound. That was John V, you know, pitched in the room and it got in. Or sometimes it'll be a more general session, like you're talking about what themes do we want or we have a story issue here. So those things are broader and everybody just, you know, you're always just trying to like come up with stuff that works and either makes other people laugh or makes people go, that's a good story turn. And you're just always trying to advance the, the product. And, and what's amazing is that after the Portland screening, the one I mentioned where the villain didn't work, Cargill was too slow. We really rewrote a lot of it. And this is pretty late in the day. This is in 2007. So that the second screening in Phoenix was way, way more popular. And we, you know, we kind of was like, we kind of felt, oh, we got it. You know, we had one more screening, but we just kind of stuck to the Phoenix version of the film. Mm, Yeah. And after the Portland screening, were you worried? I felt at that point, because it had been tested so much that there were a number of things that I thought people liked. Mm. Um, But I was much more confident after Phoenix. Then, then I thought, just don't screw it up because here you actually have something that people genuinely like. And um, but the the worry for me ended, you know, when we started getting in front of audiences because it was it went from this abstract discussion of something that just might not work to me going, oh, they see the dome, they like the dome, the naked skateboard, they like, the, you know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I would keep going, it's got like, you know, 30 minutes in the front that work and 10 minutes in the back. So if you can just kind of those closer and closer, mm. you know, then it'll be all right. This first draft ends in much the same way that the finished movie does. So Springfield is in danger. Cargill wants to destroy the town, blowing it up to make what Tom Hanks hilariously advertises as a second Grand Canyon, an all new improved Grand Canyon. Um, Marge and the kids have gone back to try and stop him. Homer selfishly at first declines to go back, but now after his epiphany, he's seen the error of his ways and he races back to save the day. There's this bomb that's been attached to the top of the dome and to get rid of it, you bring back an element that we introduced earlier in the film. So we see Homer like get on the motorbike and drive up the dome, throwing the bomb out the top, exploding the, uh, exploding the glass and freeing Springfield. It 
in doing so, he, he wins back the respect of his family and crucially, he fixes his relationship with Bart. Can you tell me about finding an ending with this sort of big set piece feel and scope fitting for a, a Simpsons movie rather than an episode? Did you always know that this is where you were headed? We always had the pig. We always had the dome. So uh, Homer's going to be the one that was responsible. So Homer's got to destroy the dome mm. and get the town back on his side. So pretty much, yeah. Yeah. It, 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 we knew it was something like that. The scene with Maggie and Homer and Russ Cargill, that was really late. I mean, that was written... I don't know, three weeks before the movie wrapped. Was that stressful? That sounds like it, you were going to the wire at that point. What was super stressful was I was literally working between the show. I was working the show still, uh, and still do, uh, and the movie 24-7. And I'm not saying, you know, like 24-7, I'm saying 24-7. When I was awake, which was most of the time, I was working on The Simpsons. You know, we had oh a Father's gosh. Day dinner that was like at 11 p.m. on a Sunday night. You know, that was one time I saw my family. And, and <laughs> I mean, I'm really glad because it worked out well. But mm. it was a lot of work. And yeah. that's just for me, of course, for everybody. Why was that the case? Was there, was there really just no option to put a pause on the TV show while you worked on the film? Well, we couldn't put a pause on the television show. And there was a deal with the actors that we had to get it out by a certain date or we would lose them. You know, they wouldn't have to do the movie. Mm. Um my biggest thing was, first of all, I didn't want to have The Simpsons make a movie where I wasn't involved. And if I was involved, I wanted to make sure that The Simpsons movie was a good movie. You know, I made yeah. those two things. So that was kind of what, what made me, motivated me the whole way through. And then, yeah. you know, I'm worried about that stuff. I worry a lot. And what was the moment when you realized that, okay, I can breathe. This is a good film. Well, one was when the reviews came in, I think. Uh, we forget it was like a weekday and you know, we got like good review in the same hour from Washington Post and New York Times. And I thought, okay, you know, at least it's got good reviews. And then, um, you know, we went to a screening in um, Vermont. We had a contest about where is Springfield, Springfield, Vermont one. And people were so happy. They actually clapped at the writer's names at the end. And I thought, okay, so, you know, th then you're going the other way. Then you're going, this will be the biggest comedy of all <laughs> <laughs> you know, it wasn't that either, but it was, it's, it's still, this is our little record. It's the second highest grossing hand-drawn animated film ever, uh, mm -hmm. because they stopped making it. The only one <laughs> higher is the Lion King. And so we may have that record or that second place for a long time. This draft has a slightly different ending, this little coda at the end that's, that's quite fun. So the camera pans out and it turns out that Kang and Kodos, two aliens from outer space who've been well, visiting Springfield since, yeah, very early on in the show's run. Um, they've been watching all the action unfold. And uh, yeah, Kang says, bravo, what a delightful tale. Kodo says, are you kidding? The whole thing made no sense. How did that bomb destroy the dome, but not the people underneath? Kang replies, well, the pig was cute. To which Kodo says, yeah, till he dropped out of the film after the first 20 minutes. Um, when did that gag come out? Because you animated that, I think. Very, very, very last minute. Matt Green and I left to do our publicity tour of UK and Europe. Yeah. And Jim Brooks did the very final edit and he took it out. <laughs> really? Did that come back to that thing we touched on earlier about sort of, if you're, a, if you're an audience member who hasn't seen The Simpsons before and it seemed like you wanted to be accessible to those people, they might yeah, say... Yeah, we're patting ourselves in the bag. It certainly did perfectly well without it. Are there elements like that that sort of, you know it was for the good of the film that it dropped out, but as sort of a writer and as someone involved, there's a little part of you that loved that thing and you miss it. It wasn't that thing. I mean, there was stuff that we worked on so long that when it dropped out initially, I would just go, Oh God, that's a pretty, 
but almost everything that got a really good laugh that the audience really liked stayed in the movie. You know, there wasn't much where I said, oh, this was a really audience pleasing thing that we took out. So, um, yeah, I'm very proud of it. And all of us felt, you know, it was something that you could definitely take pride in. But, but, it, but it did feel the conversation and what people, when you talk about the things that people loved about this film, the pig and specifically spider pig was one of the kind of real things. Also very late, very oh, really? late in the process. Yeah. Cause that's interesting. I think in this, he sings, he sings to the tune of old, old McDonald and it's, yeah. No, it was again point, between point, point, the point, Portland point. and the Phoenix screening and, uh, Marge, if Merkin pitched that Marge says, what are the pig tracks doing on the ceiling? And I said, Oh, he's the amazing spider pig. Mm. And then, you know, the song just came out of the room like spontaneously. And, and, and then it was like in all the commercial, like we didn't, <laughs> it was a movie about a pig, but it was not a spider pig movie, you know, until very late in the game. Now that you've had time to uh, well, recover from the whirlwind of making this film, Al, um, I know that you have an immense sense of pride regarding this movie, but that you also have mentioned a few times uh, in our conversation today, like things that, you know, if you could go back and do again, you'd approach in a different way. And you've mentioned Colin specifically. Um, can you tell me about, uh, yeah, what was holding you back from getting that as spot on as you maybe would have liked? You run out of time. You know, I mean, there's some movies that I think are perfect that, mm -hmm. of course, I didn't work on that. I, you know, but the best example is my favorite movie is The Godfather. And if you listen to the DVD commentary, Coppola is going, oh, here's this thing where James Conn throws a punch that doesn't even hit. You know, he's got like so many things where it's not what he, you know, even I, I thought when I saw it that the scene where they're shooting The Godfather when he's buying oranges, you don't really understand why he doesn't die. Like, it's mm -hmm. not very clear why these bullets fired right at him don't work. So, it, yeah, there's just, you, you, you know, uh, books maybe you can work on forever, but, you know, a movie, there's an end. You got to finish. You got to put it out or you don't, you know, have, uh, like, it's just a giant loss of money. The Simpsons is now, I mean, like, the final line of the finished film is Maggie saying her, her, her first word. She takes her dummy out and she says, sequel? I know you've been getting this question for 13 years. And you touched on it earlier. You don't want to do it unless there's a good reason and a great story. But is there any update on like the Simpsons movie too? When, when you guys joined up with, with Disney, was it part of the conversation? Yes, we were talking about it and we've definitely got interest and we even had a couple ideas. Uh, one problem now is there's a huge backlog of movies, you know, theatrical releases that haven't come out. So anything you know even if we had a movie ready to go it would probably be two years or more before it would be released much less mm -hmm. a movie that's not even written <laughs> so it's a very strange time i'm really glad i work in tv animation because it's the one thing that's un untouched by, by the pandemic and um, everything else is just having a very you know difficult time figuring out you know how are you going to show movies in theaters and how are you um you know, going to shoot, you know, television shows live and stuff. So um, I'm hopeful, but it's tricky. And Playdate with Destiny, which was the short film that came out earlier this year. Was that uh, in any way kind of a bit of a, you know, test run for kind of another Simpsons cinematic experience? Is it kind of on your mind as a writer's room? Yeah, it came from a, an episode by Tom Gamble and Max Pross, that, that plot. And Jim saw it and said, hey, we'll make it into a short. And what was funny is people said, oh, you're just trying to be a, you know, Disney, you know, you're trying to do a little cute Disney movie. We, we started it long before Disney bought Fox. 
Mm-hmm. So uh, then Jim showed it to Bob Iger, who really liked it. And our dream was always to get it in front of a Pixar movie, which we did. But sadly, um, more, more for them than us, the movie was out for only a week uh, onward, which I think is really great. It's on Disney Plus. Yeah. If you want to catch it. I felt badly for them that all that work had been into the movie. I mean, movie is so much work. And for that movie to only have one week release because of the virus is like too very hard, you know, too bad. Absolutely. Um, but for The Simpsons, I mean, we're on to season 32. Uh, the movie is 13 years behind us now and there's constant clamour for a second. There's, there's always interest in a second film. Um, how do you and the writers keep the hunger? How do you keep uh, finding new things to aspire to do with The Simpsons, having worked on the show for so long? You just always think, what can I do? How can I make it better? Um, people love it and I don't want to let them know. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Um, and what's in store for this season on the show, Al? What are you most excited for people to see from season 32? Well, we'll have the 700th episode. Uh, we have Ben Platt appearing in an episode. Oh, and Olivia Coleman in a huge part. And one of the funniest people we've ever had in the show. Really? Yeah, it was really exciting. She did it over the phone. Um, she plays a woman who has this huge crush on Homer for no, no apparent reason. And <laughs> so we recording and she doesn't see you know, the other actors. And then Homer goes, hello. And she just goes, it's Homer. <laughs> she was so happy <laughs> to hear Homer talking over her. She's I'm a huge, huge fan. I love the crown. Uh, you know, I loved her in the favorite. I think she's just great at everything. Well, Al, I can't wait to see it. Um, thank you so, so much for coming on Script Apart. All 30 seasons of The Simpsons are on Disney+, Plus, as is Playdate with Destiny, as is, of course, The Simpsons Movie. Al, this has been so much fun. Thanks for stopping by. My pleasure. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Kamal Demek, with music from Stefan Bindley-Taylor. Get in touch. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or you can email us, thescriptapartpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>